The Holy Gospel according to St. Luke, the 13th chapter. At that very time, there were some present who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. Jesus asked them, Do you think that because these Galileans suffered in this way, they were worse sinners than all other Galileans? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all perish as they did. Or those 18 who were killed when the Tower of Siloam fell on them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others living in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all perish just as they did. Then he told them this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came looking for fruit on it and found none. So he said to the gardener, See here, for three years I have come looking for fruit on this fig tree, and still I find none. Cut it down. Why should it be wasting the soil? He replied, Sir, let it alone for one more year, until I dig around it and put manure on it. If it bears fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise you, Lord Christ. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Stop making excuses. That's what my mom always said. She didn't care what the other kids in class were doing or what had occurred in my nine-year-old life that had kept me from completing my homework. It still had to get done. Stop making excuses. That's what my coaches always said. They didn't care what bad hop the ball took or if I was tired, I still had to make the play or at least give it 110%. Magical number in sports, as we know. Stop making excuses. That's what my boss always said. He didn't care if the client was actually in the wrong or if circumstances beyond my control had hindered my ability to make a sale. I still had to make the business money. Stop making excuses. That is what my God says. For I am responsible for my life, even when I am a victim of evil or circumstance. Yes, we are quite adept at making excuses, which is why we have to be reminded so often not to do it. No, we are called to uh, own up to our choices, to our circumstances, and our own lives. We do not have the luxury of making ourselves look better in comparison. Unless you think this is just some kind of folksy advice or just another example of Jesus' moral teaching, the idea of excuse-making is actually rather central to our understanding of ourselves and our relationship with God. It goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. Right? Remember when Adam blames Eve. Well, this woman that you gave me, she was the one who saw the fruit, etc. And so it also speaks to that most perplexing question that comes up so often 
of how God could judge those who seemingly have no direct knowledge of him. In one of the most central and relevant chapters in the New Testament, Romans 1, Paul specifically speaks to excuse-making. Now, this chapter is written for non-Jews, for Gentiles, who have sufficient knowledge of God, he says, but they have suppressed that knowledge of God and instead turned to idolatry. Let me read verses 18 to 20. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For God's invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. The Greek word used there is unapologetus, or without an apologetic. In other words, there is no defense that can be offered in one's continued rejection of God, even if the only thing they've ever known about God is what they could see by simply opening their eyes and looking at the creation. No excuse. So if and when you are ever asked how God could judge an aboriginal tribe member who has never heard the gospel, here's your answer. Well, Romans 1 says that we all have sufficient knowledge of, uh, for judgment and that we have no excuse. And as a bonus verse, in Genesis 18 we read, Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? That's a rhetorical question to which the answer is yes. And those texts are good enough for me. But if it is the case, if Romans 1 is accurate, and it is, uh, and the idolatrous pagan, right, who's, who's worshiping little stone idols and wood idols and things, if they've never even heard the gospel and yet they can be judged by God because they are suppressing the truth that is obvious to all, if even they are without excuse, well, how much more true would that be for those of us who have definitely heard the gospel or those who were promised a Messiah through direct revelation from God? Well, yes, you guessed it. More indeed. That is, it would be more true for us that we do not have an excuse. None of us, whether we are Christian or not, will be able to stand before God and say, oh, oh, but God, and then insert your excuse. We won't get to blame natural disasters, the sins of other people, or circumstance. Now, it may be that God will be unusually merciful to those of us who have been victims of circumstance, etc. I don't know. But we won't get to on our side Right? The part that, that is within our purview 
We don't get to go to God and say, hey, but, but, but. And that's what this gospel lesson is about. It's an effort in excuse-making. Hear it again. There were some present at that very time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. In other words, there was some kind of skirmish, and there were northern, Galilean means they're from the northern part of, of what we would call Israel, and, and that the people from there, sometimes called Samaritans, were sort of not pure Jews. They were sometimes called dogs. Remember the story where uh, Jesus speaks to the Syrophoenician woman, says even the dogs get the crumbs from the table, or she that, says that to him. And so the use of that word is a whole other topic. Uh, but the point is that they were considered sort of half-breeds and not pure Jews. They had uh, mingled with the Assyrians centuries before when the Assyrians had invaded. And so his answer is, do you think that those Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. So in other words, there was a comparison going on. They were saying to Jesus, hey Jesus, uh, those Yankee, half-Jew, Galilean dogs who died at the hands of Pilate, hey, they must have really deserved it, right? And you agree with us, just to be clear, that uh, your message is that we are supposed to be really good people so that we don't suffer at the hands of God, right? And Jesus cuts through the false comparison. Hey, stop comparing yourself to those that you think are your lessers, the northern Galileans, and repent. For those killed in such a brutal manner by Pilate were not judged by God for being impure Jews. They were killed because Pilate is evil and evil people do evil things. And you won't be protected by being some pure Jew that is living in accordance with the law. And that is not my message. That's not what I'm about. So repent. See, Jesus has a way of getting behind the question, right? All the assumptions built in to those Galileans who were killed by Pilate. And Jesus goes on then to really cover the entire range of circumstance from the agency of man, okay, Pilate doing an evil thing, to the randomness of falling towers. Those who died when that tower in Siloam fell, they didn't die because they were worse sinners than other people in Jerusalem. In fact, Jesus offers no reason, for there isn't a good reason, at least for those of us who will not trust completely in God, the call for the listener is simple, to repent, lest they likewise perish. In other words, you have no excuse. Stop coming to me with hypotheticals or presentations that will put you in the right and them in the wrong. We don't get to do that in God's eyes. They didn't die because they're wicked, and that means that you are not protected because in your own eyes you think you are good. This is clearly a shot 
at self-righteous Jerusalem who believed that they were safe from God's judgment because they were the good people. That is what the parable of the fig tree is about. The vine dresser, he's worked on this poor fig tree for three years. Well, how long did Jesus minister in Israel? For about three years. And yet what Jesus is saying is, hey, there is still time, one more year, for Israel to hear the words of Jesus and recognize that he is the Messiah. So there's certainly grace in the parable, and I think maybe that year is that time uh, after his crucifixion and resurrection uh, until the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 A.D. But in our reading from uh, 1 Corinthians, Paul recites Israel's history, and he uses it as a reminder of what not to do. Do not become an idolater. Do not engage in immorality. Do not put Christ to the test. He lists those things off one after another. Do not complain. He plainly says, these things happen to them to serve as an example. And when you have an example, you have no excuse. During this season of repentance, then, we need to listen to ourselves a little more closely. Do you make excuses, either out loud or in your own mind, to justify yourself? Look, we all do to one degree or another. It's not a question of if. But it is a habit that our Lord will not countenance. He makes it plain. Whether we find ourselves at the mercy of evil men or natural disaster, our calling remains the same. Repent of our sins and trust in God. Now, the good news is that God is indeed merciful. He is the vine dresser who gives you another year. As Paul reminds us in the next few verses of 1 Corinthians, Christ is with us in the bread and the wine of the Lord's Supper. He writes uh, yet another rhetorical question to which the answer must be yes. The cup of blessing that we bless is it not a sharing in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a sharing in the body of Christ? And for those of you who wonder why Lutherans believe what we do about the Lord's Supper, those are pretty good verses to look to, where he talks about how the uh, cup is the blood of Christ, the bread is the body of Christ, and yet they remain wine and bread, and yet body and blood. And so it really is a relief that we do not need to know the mysteries of the world or the inner workings of God's mind. I mean, I'm glad I don't have to know that because I'd have to go to like, I don't know, get, you know, five PhDs. And you know what I'd realize at the end of the PhDs? I still wouldn't know the inner workings of God's mind. So I'm, I'm relieved. I don't have to know that. God holds us accountable for what we know and for what we are responsible. Given all of the mysteries of this life, 
and all the possible reasons that I could come up with to justify myself and their legion, I appreciate the simplicity. Make no excuses, only trust in Christ. And he will forgive. He will have mercy. And he will call you to a better way. Amen.